In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you're 12 years of age and younger and you would like to, join me up front. What's up, buddy? Hey. All right, guys. So like we usually do, we're going we're to use our imagination this morning, okay? How many of you live in a house? Good. Good. Everybody. Now, how many of you own a house? You do? It's amazing. Well, for the rest of us, let's use our imagination. So let's say that you owned a house and you could live anywhere in the world. Where would you want to live? Raise your hand. Zootopia. Zootopia. <laughs> okay. Where would you want to live? In Missouri. Okay. Here. Here. Very nice. Where would you want to live? Africa. Africa. That's a big place. Anywhere in particular in Africa? Near the animals. Got it. Texas. <laughs> Florida. Florida. Okay. So we have a lot of different places where we would want to live. Now I want you to tell me if you could pick any cool things to be in your house. What are some cool things you would pick? Um, candy. candy. Yes. Candy is what? A basketball court. Basketball court in our house. Killing it. Um, Guns. Yes. If we have a bunch of candy, we need guns, right? Anybody else? Anything. A runway. Like for a plane? It's a great house. Excellent house. All right, so, so let's say that you have all this awesome stuff in the house, and your, your house is exactly where you want it to be. But let's say that some people come into your house and they start messing it up. They start putting loads of garbage in your house, and then they cover the walls in mud, and they bust out all the windows. And so you decide that you have to leave the house. Would that be fair? No, that wouldn't be fair, right? But sometime later, let's say that your house is rebuilt and, and you're invited to move back in. But when you move back in, the people who messed up your house are still in it. And this is what they tell you. They want you to keep the mud on the walls. They want the windows to still be busted out. And they even want you to keep the piles of garbage. Would you like that? No. No. I would just, I would just fix the windows, take the mud off the walls, and throw the garbage away. Right. And there's that would make sense. Now, let me, ask, let me ask this question. Is this your house or theirs? Your house, right? So who gets to decide what the house should look like? Us. Not these crazy people. So what do you think, do you think it would be okay if you decided that you weren't leaving this time, but they were leaving? Would that be okay? Yes. yes. Would it be okay, would it be an okay thing for you to do if you kick those people out of your house? Yes. Yes. Why? Because it's, it's your house. And these are crazy garbage mud people. <laughs> what are they even doing? Or you could Trying to destroy your house. And kill them. What you could. Throw them in the garbage. You're right. And put them in his bag and suck the air out of it. In today's sermon, I'm going to tell you a story that's kind of like this, okay? So as you go back to your seats, I want you to listen for that, all right? Okay? Why'd you punch me? I meant to tap you. I'm sorry. 
<clears throat> so growing up, my family didn't really go to church. And outside of weddings and funerals, the occasional VBS, Easter was really the only other time we might go to church. And sure, I was a little bit fuzzy on all of the details, but I really felt like I had the whole Christian story pretty well sorted out. Jesus died for our sins, he came back to life, and now we're good, something like that. And I don't remember exactly when this was, but I remember the very first time I found myself in church on the Sunday before Easter, on Palm Sunday. And guys, I think that was one of the very first times I realized I had no idea what Christians were doing or even what the story was about. And you know what? For, the, for as immature as it is and as dismissive as I was then, I wasn't completely wrong. I mean, guys, from, from an outside perspective, every single thing we just did was super weird. I mean, how many places can you name where everyone walks around the room waving tree branches? That's not really something that you do a lot. There's not a lot of stories that incorporate tree branches as a central feature. But here we all are this morning, all of us with branches in our hands, all of us recreating the biblical event of a Sunday from some 2,000 years ago. And on that Sunday, the people of Jerusalem reacted to the entrance of Jesus like it was a big deal. But it wasn't like that Sunday was the very first time Jesus came into Jerusalem, right? So what made this entrance of Jesus on that day so special? Why were the people of Jerusalem lining the streets while waving palm branches and declaring Jesus to be the son of David? Well, as it turns out, this entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem was unlike any other time he had ever entered. As a matter of fact, the entrance of Jesus that day was unlike any other entrance Jerusalem had ever seen. And the reason why this entrance on that Palm Sunday was such a big deal is because of what happened hundreds and hundreds of years before. You see, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, there was a prophet named Ezekiel. And Ezekiel had quite the bone to pick with the people of Israel. The people of Israel had sworn a covenant with God. And in that covenant, they swore to love God and to be faithful to Him alone. But even though the people of Israel had sworn this, even though they had sworn the solemn oath on their very lives, the people of Israel still chased after other gods. The language that's used most often in the Old Testament about how Israel pursued these other gods was that Israel prostituted themselves before the nations. The kings of Israel modeled their kingdom. The people of Israel modeled themselves not after the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they modeled themselves after the nations and the gods they served. Absolutely detestable gods like Baal and Molech were revered and worshipped in Israel, defiling the land. And the temple itself, the very place where the Spirit of God dwelled in the midst of His people, the place where heaven and earth touched, was defiled and corrupted by unspeakable acts that were perpetrated within the walls themselves. The glory of the Lord which had filled the temple, the very presence of the Lord was no longer welcomed in the land. The Lord was no longer welcomed in the holy city of Jerusalem. He wasn't even welcomed in His own temple. And by the time you reach Ezekiel chapter 10, we see the heartbreaking result of Israel's unfaithfulness. Ezekiel chapter 10 shows the glory of the Lord, the very presence of God Himself raising up from the temple in Jerusalem. 
The cloud hovered above the temple for a short time, and then the cloud began to move. And for the first time since the days of Solomon, the presence of the Lord was no longer found in the temple. The presence of the Lord continued to move out of the city until he finally reached the eastern gate. There the Lord paused, hovering over the eastern gate for a moment, waiting as if he were giving the people another chance. But the people said nothing, and his departure from the city was the consequence. For the very first time since before the exodus, the Lord was no longer found among his people. Ezekiel records that for a time, the glory of the Lord lingered just outside of the city, hovering over a mountain to the east of Jerusalem. In my mind, I've always imagined the Lord facing east, looking back over his shoulder at Jerusalem, giving them one last chance to ask for forgiveness, giving them one last chance to say, don't go. But the people say nothing. And you get a sense from Ezekiel that they barely even notice that the Lord is gone. The presence of the Lord continued to move up the mountain to the east of Jerusalem until he disappeared over the horizon. The Lord was gone from his temple. The Lord had departed the holy city. The Lord was no longer found among his people. This was an utterly devastating moment for Israel. But for as devastating as it was, there was still yet hope. Several chapters later in Ezekiel 43, God shows Ezekiel another vision. A vision of how God would return to his people. In the vision, God leads Ezekiel to the eastern gate of Jerusalem. And Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord returning to Jerusalem. The Lord was actually coming back to his people from over the same mountain which he departed. Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord coming over the horizon on the mountain to the east. The glory of the Lord came down that mountain and approached Jerusalem. The Lord came to the city, passed through the city, through the eastern gate, the exact gate through which the Lord had departed, and then the coup de grace. The Spirit of the Lord went to the temple. The Lord re-entered the temple and refilled the temple with His holy presence. And then, a Lord, then the Lord made a claim over the temple. The Lord said that the temple, defiled and filled with abominations as it was, once again belonged to Him. And this time His response to the filth in the temple would be to clean it from top to bottom. Guys, whatever else Palm Sunday is, it is the absolute fulfillment of that prophecy. Ezekiel said that the glory of the Lord would return from over the mountain to the east. The Mount of Olives that Jesus came down is that very mountain. Jesus, the glory of the Lord himself, descended that mountain from the east riding on a donkey. Jesus re-entered through the eastern gate just as Ezekiel said the Lord would. He re-entered through the exact same gate through which the glory of the Lord had departed centuries earlier. This is why so many lined the streets of Jerusalem shouting Hosanna to the Son of David. There were many that day that recognized the coming of Jesus down that mountain as the coming of God's Messiah, as the re-entry of the very presence of God among His people. And their response was to sing and dance and shout and wave tree branches and throw their cloaks. Their response was worship. The glory of the Lord was once again in Jerusalem. He was once again in the midst of His people, but He wasn't done yet. 
Jesus began making his way to the temple. And when he arrived there, he found it was still, after all of these years, an unclean mess. It wasn't a house of prayer. It wasn't a place of holiness or purity. No, in the words of Jesus, the temple was a den of what? Robbers, thieves. But Jesus had the medicine for that sickness. Jesus tied together a band of small cords, and as he flipped over tables belonging to the money changers with a whip in his hand, he drove every single person out of the temple. The temple had been cleansed from top to bottom, and it once again was filled with the presence and the glory of the Lord. It was once again his house. And it's at that moment, I think, that the story really begins to turn towards the unthinkable. I think there were many that day that saw Jesus come down that mountain. They saw him enter the eastern gate. They heard the shouts of the people and they thought to themselves, maybe this Jesus guy is the one. Maybe he's going to finally restore to us all we've lost. But what they witnessed instead was Jesus turning over tables. They witnessed him making whips and bringing the entire sacrificial system to a complete stop. And some in Jerusalem, indeed many in Jerusalem, began to question whether or not this Jesus was the one they thought he was. Would the Messiah have this contentious of a relationship with the most respected religious leaders in all Israel? Would the Messiah really want the sacrificial system to stop altogether? Would the Messiah seemingly make war on Israel while saying absolutely nothing about the Romans walking the streets of Jerusalem? Many in Jerusalem saw the actions of Jesus, the very words of Jesus, as incongruent with who they thought the Messiah would be. And thoughts like these began to percolate in the minds of people, and it was thoughts like these that led many in just a few days' time to support the arrest and the eventual execution of the same man celebrated with palm branches and shouts of praise. And that seems to be a core lesson taught to us on Palm Sunday. People cry out for God to move among them, and when he does, people disagree with God's method. They disagree with his style. People cry out for God to speak, but when he does, they disagree with his words. People cry out for God to rid the world of evil and injustice, and they never stop to consider God may have something to say about the perversity rooted in their own hearts. Many people today have a view of God that is created in their own image. The God they speak of endorses the things they deem are good. Their God loves what they love and hates what they hate. The God they have fashioned for themselves has never once indicted them of any sin they love. And if they ever encounter a God who does, then that God must be mistaken, not them. Many in this world have a seemingly inexhaustible capacity to indict God of injustice when His ways differ from ours. My brothers and sisters, for all of our faults and misgivings, whatever else we are, that is not Christ's church. Whatever else we are, we are the ones who were submitted to God, not the ones rebelling against Him. When we see the world and all of its jagged hate, the church is the very first one on her knees interceding for that same hateful world. When we see our neighbors sin, we are not the ones that scoff. We are not the ones that treat those trapped in sin with contempt. 
No, when we see the overflowing sin of this world, we are the ones asking for God to have mercy upon them. We are the ones asking for God to forgive the manifold sins of this world and to illuminate sin that, it, that might be locked away in our own hearts as well. We are the ones that anticipate God's movement in this world to culminate in the changing of this world. Yes, for this world to become a world that perfectly reflects Him. But we are the ones that acknowledge the change that we want to see in the world has to begin in us first. And I think that's the divide that's seen on Palm Sunday. Are we like the ones in Jerusalem that were looking for God to change the world, but not their own hearts? Are we convinced that the problems of this world would go away if everyone else were fixed? Or are we like those that welcomed the Lord in with palm branches in their hands and said, Lord, all of this is yours. Lord, all of us belongs to you. Have your way. Let us be the first purified by your coming and your presence. Perhaps if the crowd had paused and reflected, they might have seen this deeper work in Jesus' arrival. Perhaps if the crowd had paused and reflected, things would have turned out differently. Perhaps if the crowd had paused and reflected, they would have seen that Jesus was indeed their Messiah, but in a much more profound way than they ever expected. And as Lent comes to a close, we see that pausing and reflecting is the great utility of this time of year. For weeks we have paused to consider the deepest and most ancient intentions of God. And our Lenten reflection has led to this day. A day where we find that Jesus is our Messiah, but a day that shows us God may work in ways we do not expect. Amen.